Live from 91.3 WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio, it's Filmically Perfect with J. Todd Anderson, George Williman, and me, your host, Nikki Dakota. Slightly less drama and intrigue than the crazy house scene that we are about to describe. It is another edition of Filmically Perfect. Hello, I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio by the amazing, gifted, talented, artistic hands of the storyboard artist to the Coen Brothers and all the big stars. He is uh, J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd. My gifted hands, what to do with them? <laughs> what to do? What, what to, to do, do with my gifted hands? Oh, did you say hands? I thought you said gland. <laughs> <laughs> and just an arm's reach away, it is. <laughs> arm is the, is the biggest gland of them all. <laughs> the keeper of all things film. Glandular. In each of the <laughs> cells of his brain, he is the keeper of, of the frame and our friend, the nitrate film archivist to the Library of Congress. George Williman, George. Keep your chins up. That's what I always say. <laughs> All of them. We have gathered ourselves together today, in fact, on every Friday, to celebrate the finest. Are you calling my chins films. pancake batter? <laughs> and this time around, it is, uh, I'll just say, I, I don't know, there's something about this. It's grandiose. It is, uh, it is grandiose because it has Orson Welles, Rita. Hayworth, who was billed first in this, by the yes, way. Yes. It is the lady from Shanghai, the 1948 film. That's 47. 1947. Well, well the guy from the a, Library of I, Congress. No, actually, he's right. It was actually, it was made in 1947, but with all the fiddling around they had to do with it, it didn't get out to the theaters until 48. Because uh, Orwell is uh, Orson, uh, Orson Wells. I'm going to do that as, all. That's a, a good uh, you know, uh, Orwell. compensation. <laughs> Orwell. Orwell. Yeah. Because he's involved. There's got to be reworking and tinkering. Like people and got mad at Orson Welles and let him have it and say, listen here, Orwell. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, this is not something that just came to the film guys in a dream or that they just decided one afternoon over a Philly cheesesteak. No, it is by a very strenuous and strict process of rules that these films pass to arrive at this day. Well, Lady from Shanghai, it creates the world that it exists in. Oh boy, does it, and it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, Lady from Shanghai retains its meaning and entertainment value. And it will never be put in any kind of numerical order list. Lady from Shanghai can stand on its own two shapely gams. <laughs> and it is a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Shapely gams indeed with a beautiful Rita Hayworth. Regardless of what Budinsky... <laughs> Tries to tell us in our annual, you know, our weekly meetings on ch- picking out these movies, but Inski's got to like learn how to cool it. Because again, again, that guy came in there, interrupted us, and threw this this coaster in our face, and it was called "Down with Love." <laughs> And and you know what it is is Bud Inski has a crush on Nikki Dakota. Right. I like all the love movies. Uh, uh, love actually. And he likes you. As well. And he, he sticks it behind my car windshield wiper. Uh, you haven't even seen it. You will not even see it. You. Well, hard, I certainly have looked at the cover enough because Bud Inski's in love with you, and he won't lay off. 
Well, I, I saw that Bud had brought uh, Nikki some flowers last yeah. week, but really? I also noticed I never that they were very similar to a, a bouquet I had just seen at the cemetery earlier that day. Aw, so, aw, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Just have to make it all nasty. Okay, so let's talk a moment about <laughs> Bud hangs out. Man. <laughs> Bud is Mr. Nasty. He and Frankenstein. Bud is he himself. Uh huh. So let's talk a little bit about the action. In this film, and um, you talking about Budinsky in the cemetery or <laughs> um, Lady from Shanghai? That one. Well, the Lady from Shanghai starts out with this character, Michael O'Shea, played by Orson Welles, uh, who's also known to his buddies and others as Black Irish. Um, they're never really sure why they call him Black Irish. They kind of allude to it that something he did to somebody, but um, mm. they never really go into it in detail. Uh, but he talks about it. And um, it starts in voiceover, and you get the the idea that, you know, everything would have been fine with him had he not met, met this lady. And he sees her going through the park, and she's dropped something, and he gives it back to her. And an officer's her a cigarette. She says she doesn't smoke, but she takes a cigarette anyways, wraps it in a handkerchief. Very, very strange. Huh. Uh, a few minutes later, he finds her being accosted by some ruffians in the park and rescues her. And then in a sort of, really monumental fight scene, I might yeah, add, and and then takes her on a on a cab ride with the hand, the the driver's handsome cab. The driver's been knocked out, um, and they they start this strange strange relationship, and and she tells him about this, you know, they start talking about this this case, this law case, and this lawyer Bannister, which comes out of nowhere, and it turns out, you know, the next couple of days he's at the O'Shea is back at the like the sailors' union where he's waiting to get work, and this. Bannister, the lawyer, comes to see him. And Bannister is played by Everett Sloan, and he's he plays his handicapped. He's got two canes that he walks with and leg braces. And Bannister wants to hire O'Shea to work on his yacht as bosun. So he does this, and it turns out that Bannister is the husband of Rita Hayworth's character. So it starts these little uh-huh. pieces start coming together. And they start taking a tour of the South, the Caribbean area and Jamaica and like that. And 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 O'Shea meets um, uh, Bannister's partner George Grigsby, who is just this interesting actor named Glenn Anders. Who wasn't in a whole lot of movies, but if he was if he was never in another movie besides this one, he'd be memorable because he is so slimy and he sweats all the time. He the He's like a number of characters that we liked, like the guy in the Asphalt Jungle who sweats all the time, mm-hmm. and the guy in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazi villain who sweats all the time. <laughs> but uh, but it's character, man. Grigsby character. is just generally creepy, and the first time you see him, he's spying on uh, on Rita in her bathing suit as she's diving off the rocks. So you know there's something going on with him. And at one point in the movie, we have a little sound piece here where Grigsby kind of corners O'Shea and is talking to him about a plan that he has. First the big cities, then maybe even this. It's just got to come. I prefer to be somewhere else than it does. I will be. That's what I need you for, Michael. To see to it that I'm not around. How'd you like $5,000? What? That's what I said. $5,000, fella. And what do I have to do for it? I'll fill in the details later. Meanwhile, think it over, Michael. $5,000. It's yours. All you have to do is kill somebody. Who, Mr. Grisby? I'm particular who I murdered. Good boy. You know, 
I wouldn't like to kill just anybody. Is it someone I know? Oh, yeah. But you'll never guess. I give up. It's me. I'm perfectly sober, Michael. I'm willing to pay $5,000 if the job is well done. This is a straightforward business proposition. I want you to kill me. So long, fella. <laughs> We might encourage you to watch this movie before you draw your conclusions that he has done something at this point because he hasn't. It's just it's just a dramatic very moment. Stylish exit, and the, he's not jumping off a cliff, which you're kind of led to believe that he's going to do at any single right. minute during this conversation. Well, I mean, O'Shea just thinks this is nuts at first, but he starts getting more and more entangled with Mrs. Bannister. And, Who is uh, glorious Rita Hayworth? Yeah, glorious, glorious. She really is beautiful. Blondified. She Rita was the the desire girl of the mid nineteen forties, and especially of Harry Cohn. But um, what other we'll, men too? Boy. We'll get back to that. Um, I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what that's from. Robocop. Robocop. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Another one of our perfect movies, by the way. That's right. But I digress. Uh, so eventually, he decides. To, O'Shea decides to go to Grigsby and and earn the five thousand bucks. And the whole trick is that basically he's going to sign a confession that he has murdered Grigsby. Grigsby's just going to disappear and pretend that he's dead in some way of of getting money. So it's all a money scam. It's a whole money, scam. A money mm-hmm. scam. And then he's got a way of getting. Getting O'Shea out of this, and you know, I can't remember. George, is it insurance? The detail on that? It is an insurance thing. The, the company has, and that falls policy. into you know, if you make a insurance movie about crime or killing somebody, it's instantly one of our favorite <laughs> <Yeah>. movies. <laughs> You're gonna kill somebody for an insurance settlement. We're there, boys. <laughs> they get everything set up, and the night comes when they're going when they're going to do the murder of Grigsby, and then Grigsby gets panicky when another one of Bannister's men confronts him. And he ends up killing this other guy. So the other guy, before he dies, manages to tell Mrs. Bannister what has happened. And then Grigsby actually turns up dead. So now O'Shea is in really big trouble because Grigsby's actually dead and can't do anything to get him out of this jam that he's got him into. And there's this sealed confession of his. Um, it's so kind that, of strangers on a train ish, yeah, and then it's almost. But it's a, just it's strangers on a train on acid because <laughs> it's just, it really everything is. about it. It's typical Orson Welles. Everything's twisted and gnarled, and and it's, and, it's, and, it's a, a wild, wild bronco ride. They finally, they actually, he ends up getting arrested, and he goes to trial for the murder of George Grigsby. And there's this wild trial uh, where, like, Arthur Bannister, uh, actually, uh, the defense attorney or the prosecuting attorney puts Arthur Bannister up, who is playing the, the uh, defense attorney, excuse me, prosecuting attorney, puts up the defense attorney as a witness. And then, of course, the defense attorney gets to cross-examine himself. So this ah. is a really bizarre scene. And then at the very end, the jury goes out, and when they come back in, just before they announce the verdict, they go, the verdict is O'Shea reaches over and grabs Arthur Bannister's pain pills that he takes for his, uh, his leg problem and swallows all of them. <laughs> they rush him out because they're afraid he's going to commit suicide. And in the ensuing melee, he gets away. And he ends up, uh, eventually ends up waking up in the fun house at this local abandoned amusement pier. And this is a very famous this, this is scene. Probably, this is the scene this movie will always be remembered by. This scene is this elaborate house of mirrors with these just 
images that just go everywhere. And Range all, multiple images and images, images that break and sustain themselves. There's even there. The camera guy put a mat on. He put like on the mat box. He put a broken piece of glass. broken glass and uh, and he doesn't hold it too long. But it's again, it's more of this Orson Welles ways of doing things, like visceral, almost visceral filmmaking. Filmmaking, you can actually feel what's going on. And you know, this glass is is all has the possibility of breaking at any moment. He shoots through it, shoots around it. Um, there's no way to really really talk about it unless you see it. And right. it's one of those really beautiful pieces of film that you can watch a lot because it's it's almost a visual design. Now they're black and white and, and white, used to great effect with all these angles and shadows and like And another and this and then this point I kind of have to spoil the ending because I can't really oh. tell you about it. Until oh, got to spoil oh, it. Here we go. There's the glass. There's the glass. Fun house. But actually, uh, Bannister and Mrs. Bannister are both in this fun house. They're, of course, going to try to finish off O'Shea so that he can't rat on them. But it turns out that he that they discover that Mrs. Bannister actually killed Grigsby to shut him up. And Bannister and Mrs. Bannister shoot it out at each other. But, of course, they're shooting into mirrors. And it takes a while, but they do manage to hit each other. Eventually. Yeah, but boy, they sure go through a lot of work to hit each yes, other. Yes, indeed. And then and it's a lot of fun. And uh and <laughs> as as poor Mrs. Bannister, the lovely Rita lays dying on the boardwalk, uh Michael O'Shea, the brave tough Irishman, the black walks Irish. away and leaves her there. Leaves her to die. <laughs> Don't leave me to die. And then he walks out and he says something about calling the police. Calling and the, the police and hoping that he can live the rest of his life and eventually forget her. Well, yeah. since she's going to die, I suppose it might be Easier. We don't know if she's dead. That's the whole thing. How long did it take her to die? What was her, you know? But again, this this laser. Yeah. Rita Hayworth laying there in her hair and glass. This, this, and this film caused quite a bit of a furor even before it was released because Wells was being Wells. I mean, he really was. And and this is the last studio film he made for a long, long time because you know, he got wrapped up in this thing and started doing all his little Orson Wellesy tricks. And, and and went way over the top on it. And Which is pretty standard practice for him. He just kept figuring out how to go over the top more than he could ever figure out how to go over the top. He had devised ways to go over the top more times than there was a top to go over. Right. <laughs> you know? But this uh, one he really like Orson Well. This one he really topped himself because he he made this sort of on a promise to Harry Cohn. He Wells was doing a a theatrical production of Around the World in 80 Days in New York, and they were running short of money. So he went to Harry Kahn, of all people, and got some money from him. But who's this, who is he again? Harry Kahn was the head of Big Columbia Pictures. Okay. Columbia Pictures. He was the Stooges' boss. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so he'd gotten some money from Harry Kahn on the promise that he would write and direct and be in a movie that would feature Rita Hayworth. And this is the movie. Well, he, he was married to in real life at the yes, time. Yes, he was married. They were estranged by this time. It didn't last very long. Uh. He was still notorious from Citizen Kane, which didn't make much money right. at the time. But he still was very, very notorious for his radio antics and his theatrical antics. And so oh, he was still a valued ticket and commodity. In How old was life. he at this time? I'm thinking he was maybe in his early 30s. Oh, gosh. He's still young. 25 when he made Citizen Kane. Yeah. That was 41. Um, so... So Wells is get gets the money to do this film, and he makes you know he writes the script. They make this film. They shoot all this footage down in South America. They come back to the states. He doesn't like any of the footage. He wants to start over. 
<laughs> so the budget on this film for Columbia went absolutely out of the roof. I mean, it was over $2 million by the time it was finished. Does any of that original footage exist? or Some of it does. Interesting. Uh, when he cut it, his first cut was 155 minutes long. And the film now is only 87 minutes. The finished film is 87 minutes. But basically it's because it was the same thing that always happened to Orson Welles. The film was taken out of his hands and Harry Cohn gave it to two of his people at Columbia and said, you know, make something out of this so we can show. You're listening to Filmically Perfect, and we're talking about The Lady from Shanghai, the 1948 perfect film featuring Rita Hayworth and her then-husband Orson Welles. And there, you had mentioned something else. I mean, so many things about this movie were <coughs> troublesome and, mm-hmm. and breaking the mold, and also there was a, a big deal about Rita's a big hair. De- yeah, uh, Rita Hayworth was, was a... Cre- if there was ever a created personality it was rita hayward they manufactured her because Who's she they? came out uh, they being columbia, columbia pictures okay. um I mean, rita, studio now this is before they were free agents studio ran their people like contract players and they masterminded their careers and they decided everything when you're on right. contract for columbia you did what they had to do what and they said told you to do. rita had been in the film business since the early 30s um she started out as a as like a dancer she was a dancer um, and her actual her birth name was Margarita Cancino, and her parents were the 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 Cancinos, who were a famous dancing team. And so she came into films like Carmen the Fiery Senorita, and they always had her playing Hispanic characters because she was she was uh, of Hispanic descent. She was dark haired, you know, heavy eye, you know, kind of heavy uh, dark eyebrows, you know, and very very Hispanic looking. She gets to Columbia, and Harry Cohn reinvents her into Rita Hayworth. They, she went through really painful electrolysis to raise her hairline. Oh, her hairline yikes. Made too low on her forehead and they for recolored, what they considered good camera work. Right, and they lightened her hair and they made it red, made it long red hair. And and she became a huge hit. This she is, was their first huge star. This was, keep in mind, it wasn't because it was red hair because it, it was because Technicolor was hitting, and and they oh. went for the, the most luxurious, richest color that would photograph. Right, and still to this day, redheads photograph a little bit better than everybody else because they just there's just something in their pigment and their hair that that's why a lot of people go to the redhead because it photographs so well. And and old Technicolor took it and worked it like Judy right. Garland. Uh, those those really dense colors r- were. Very, very sensational on Technicolor, and her red hair was. And and one of in fact one of Columbia's first color films, I think it was their actually their second color film, is a musical called Cover Girl, that stars Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly. It's a really great little little musical, and and yeah, it shows up. She's absolutely knockout. What's, it, what's that one movie she was in? I mean, the big movie where she dances a lot in the sensational Technicolor movie, George. What, we Cover talk, Girl. No, we talked about it earlier. It was. Um, there's like three dance sequences in there, and she has these ornate gowns. Well, however you it slice it, was it? Is, uh, I'm she sorry, was I've drawn a total blank. Destined on that one. for Technicolor and made her yes. name as this redhead, and then bringing it back to the Orson and his uh, bucking of the trend and the shattering of the mold. Right. He, what he does is he takes her and cuts her hair short, bobs it pretty much, and bleaches it blonde. Yeah. She actually kind of looks like Lana Turner in some way. Who was outraged by this is what I want to Harry know. Cohn. Harry Cohn was furious. Oh, so That's the when studio. he wasn't dealing with the Stooges. That's right. He, he got, <laughs> when the Stooges weren't asking for more money, he was he complaining was to with her, hair. her hair. But the people had to have loved it because she is a knockout in this. She's absolutely stunning. No. Really? Like the it. people didn't like it? They liked her as a redhead head. and long hair. 
So they made trouble, made trouble for it. So, huh. So there you have it. Just another in the... You guys are whispering Still trying to, to one another. Not Gilda. Okay. No, it's not Gilda. It's black and white. No, Gilda was one of her first big things because Gilda was a big a black and white, almost like film noir kind of thing. And and uh, she gets to really grind her moves in that one as as Rita, you know, with so the she, red hair. And <laughs> Even though it's black and white, you can tell it's red. Yeah. Oh, boy. But anyways, Same thing with Lucy, but so anyway. I said, Wells had cut her hair and blondified her. <laughs> and and Harry Cohn was furious, and the film was long, and it was rambling, and it didn't make any sense, at least not to Harry Cohn. Uh-huh. We'll never know because that footage is is gone. It's but just you gone. know, they too always, um, of course, George and I are much too young to remember any of these people. Um, <laughs> but everybody always takes these studio heads and turn and vilifies them. What you got to remember here is Harry Cohn was running a studio that made 60 pictures a year at about that time, and he had to get these things into the theaters on schedule. So we can all glamorize about how great Orson Welles was an artist, and he was, you know? But you have to put yourself in other people's place, too. Imagine dealing with Orson Welles when you have a schedule and to get your film out on time. It, I can only imagine how difficult it would have been dealing with that man trying to get something done. Yeah, it'll be done, it'll be done. I've I've been around it a little bit my own through the last 20 years in, in Los Angeles, and I've seen how it is. I can only imagine what Mr. Cohn probably had to deal with with this guy. And plus, he's dealing with their property, which was Gilda, um, you know, Rita. Rita. That was their investment. She was their big, she was, and big And she investment. was their cash cow. I mean, and here's Rita Orson Welles cutting marquee. her hair. Yeah. <laughs> So you can only imagine, you know, that what what Harry Cohn had to go through. I'm sure he had really bad reputation, but you have to just kind of think about, you know, what other people were dealing with Orson Welles. I mean, this is a story that is repeated time and time again in his career, of of starting a real a really great project like like Magnificent Ambersons or or Citizen Kane, even for that matter, and and it just going totally awry because he just his mind was just constantly going and churning and ideas are coming out and he couldn't really get a hang of it or control over it. So he was not a storyboarder, I'm guessing. I met met Robert Wise a few years ago, about 10, 11 years ago. And Mr. Wise, he was the editor on Citizen Kane, right, George? Mm -hmm. He worked on it, yeah. And he had worked with on Magnificent Ambersons, I believe. Yeah, Um, he was given the unenviable job of cutting it down. And Wise was very clear about how Orson Welles would not finish anything. He would say, it, Citizen Kane was, only, was Orson Welles' only really great film because he actually was trying to complete it. But on these other films, Orson Welles was all over the world. He was, he was here, he was there, and he said that was the biggest problem with Orson Welles was getting him in one place at one time to finish the project. And I can only imagine how frustrating that would be for an editor or somebody who's waiting on a director to show up. Um, but regardless, um, this movie, there's not a dull shot in this picture, and it's that camera is everywhere. The fight scenes are just some of the most liquid and vibrant pieces of directorial effort I've ever seen in any movies. Um, especially that fight scene at the end when they're in the office. Yeah, and so many wonderful, crazy shots and cuts, and he cuts frames out of the film for impact. And you think so? It's just uh-huh. really, really nice. It's just refreshing to see something so loose and out of control, but yet 
under a little bit of control. Yeah, and that's that's, a, that's sort of the interesting double-edged sword on this film is that on the one hand, okay, Wells is an artist. He had a vision for this film. The vision got taken away from him by an irate studio boss, which it was his prerogative to do that. It was his money. It was his film, you know, as as studio head. Uh, what is left, of course, is not completely what Orson Welles imagined, but what what is left is brilliant. And it puts it comes together so wonderfully and it's so it's so out there and it's, it's so unusual. There. And there's not another film from Columbia at that time like it. He's got these crazy cuts where people are looking smack dab right down the the axis line of the lens. Yeah. You know? And and he's got these wide lenses where people step up into them yeah. and you know, whenever he, anybody throws a punch in this film, it's stylish. It's not just a stunt man throwing a punch. He's Orson Welles has a camera locked down in this amazing position that works every time. Uh, I'm sure there'll be arguments from people on this because a lot of people I've heard disenchantment with this movie through years that it is kind of out of control. But I love every minute of it. It's just too wild and too fun to look at all the time. As I have discovered, even Orson Welles' worst film is better than some director's best films. It's it's so much is inspired in this thing. Just mm-hmm. inspired work. We're talking about uh, The Lady from Shanghai, the 1948 film starring Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. And so he directed this. He's acting in it. Um, and wrote the script. And wrote the script. Written production and script yeah, bias. Script and production. And yeah. plus, he's, it's starring his then wife, but estranged wife. So, Correct. I mean, could there be any more bizarre, wild uh, vectors in here? It's, it's well, amazing the that, that, we can't well, find. that the to movie add, was ever made. To add one more thing to it, uh, there's an actor <laughs> who appears in this film named Gus Schilling. And Gus Schilling is pretty much forgotten today. He's this little, little scrawny guy who appeared as a second banana in so many films at Columbia. Gus Schilling is in, as far as I can find, almost every single one of Orson Welles' films, at least the ones he did here in the States. He's in Citizen Kane. He's in Many of His Amersons. He's in Touch of Evil. And he's in this film. But wait, that's not all. Our man at the Library of Congress and George his eagle, eagle inspection eyes caught something in this film when we were reviewing it tonight before we went on here. And he <laughs> thinks, and I have to agree with him, I studied it too, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. In this one tracking scene, this one tracking scene looks a, a lot like a touch of evil. There's somebody with a horse. Who do you think that man is, George? Well, it's, it's, for those of you who have the DVD or video of, of Lady from Shanghai, it's about 37 minutes into the film. Rita Hayworth is running through this sort of downtown area in this little Spanish village. Very stylish. She's Very running, stylish. You know, the camera's behind really. the columns, shooting her through the opening of the columns. As she runs by this gentleman leading a donkey, he turns and he lifts his hat to her. And I will swear that that is Joseph Cotton. I, I have to agree with him. Joseph I who? At Joseph who? Joseph Cotton. Now, who is that? Joseph Cotton was <laughs> a member of the Mercury uh, company, the Orson Welles' company, stars with him in stars with Orson Welles in Citizen Kane, and is also in many of his Ambersons, and went on for many years, became an actor of his own right, and was in hundreds of movies up until he died, maybe twenty years ago. Very, very popular, and I think that Welles put him in this film just to doff his hat in this one scene. And it, and it makes sure perfect sense because like Cotton was with him for a long, yeah, long, Cotton long time. Cotton was one of his buddies. I kind of like that, those touches. These. Because, uh, because or, uh, Joseph Cotton also appears in Touch of Evil with no credit as the doctor at the beginning, dubbed with Orson Welles' voice. How can we find this out? Go 37 minutes into the movie and check it out. Hey, you're listening to Filmically Perfect, and we Our are almost the Library of Congress out of is time. on the case. I'll give you the rules on this. Certainly creates it, sustains it, and uh, and is very entertaining despite any uh, changes in That's culture. Right, no question it's about around, it. It's still on demand, and it's still going to be watched. Stop 
by online, perfectmovie.net. We promise you it'll be worth your while. Nitrate film markers for the Library of Congress, George Willem, and thank you. Thank you. Storyboard artists to all the so big stars. It's always my pleasure, Nikki. And you know, if you come to our website, you can see a picture of George and me. <laughs> worth the trip. Or what's that worth? Yeah. Worth the trip, my Scare friend. Scare the kitties. Scare the kids. Are we going to show them the hand for next time? No. Meet you back here. We'll all find out. Thanks Come for Come to the website next Wednesday. We'll to Filmically Perfect. Thank you, gentlemen. I don't think we're showing up. too long. You've been listening to Filmically Perfect with J. Todd Anderson, George Williman, and me, your host, Nikki Dakota. Heard live every Friday after the noon news on 91.3 WYSO. The shows are also available for download from iTunes or can be streamed at www.wyso.org.